I don't have my whole life mapped out too concretely in part because part of what has helped me be successful has been being open to different opportunities as they arise. You have to be kind of willing to be opportunistic, I think, in life and in real estate. Welcome to the Real Estate Monopoly podcast. My name is Kerwin Donis. My brothers and I got into real estate investing to achieve financial freedom and help underserved communities in Guatemala, where our mom is from. Real estate is the vehicle we're taking to achieve our goals. And you can too. On this show, we share the stories of some of the most successful real estate investors to show you that you can succeed in real estate just like they have. Each episode, we deliver inspiring and educational content that will empower you to launch your real estate investing career and achieve your financial goals. Let's go. Dave Holman has been a real estate investor since 2011 and is a broker for Remax Riverside, specializing in commercial and investment property. He co-owns 94 rental units in Southern Maine. Dave started his real estate journey after learning about green buildings during his studies. He shared how this exposure led him down the rabbit hole that was real estate. Born and raised here in Maine, left to go to college out in Minnesota. Um, so spent four years at Carleton College, and that's where I first kind of got exposed to real estate. You know, my family didn't really have anything to do with it, kind of middle-class background. We had one house, you know, that was it. Um, but in college, I learned about uh, green building and architecture. Our director of facilities taught a class called Building the Eco House. So I started learning about energy efficiency and insulation, technology, renewable energy, these kind of things, and got to apply some of that knowledge to build some projects on the campus, you know, with the school that was neat. So that kind of got my wheels turning. Um, I uh, had studied uh, Spanish and Latin America. So I was down in Bolivia um, and went there after school um, and spent the next four years in Bolivia, where I, I started a chain of camping stores with my then girlfriend, now wife, you know, who's from Cochabamba and Bolivia. So um, that kind of got my entrepreneurial juices Flowing. It was really fun. You know, we started with one, ended up with three different stores in that country. And um, it was a really interesting lesson, I guess. And I had never, I had only taken one business or econ class my whole college career. So I was kind of fresh, a clean slate, uh, so to speak. But I think it is intuitive for most people that kind of buy low, sell high, you know, mentality that you have to have, you know, to do anything in business or um, so forth. So I, I came back from that and I realized, gosh, I've got you know, three stores, 10 employees, and I don't know what the heck I'm doing, or at least I didn't feel like I did. So I, I came back uh, with my wife in, in 2009 to the US to go to business school uh, here in Maine. And um, turned out all I really needed was accounting uh, to, to really master what I was up to there. I think most of the rest of business is pretty intuitive. You don't need an MBA, you know, to do real estate and stuff. Um, but uh, it did help, certainly. And that led me into the nonprofit space. So I worked uh, at a nonprofit called Safe Passage that helps kids in Guatemala to go to school uh, who are in the city garbage dump there uh, for three and a half years. Got more interested in the fundraising side of nonprofits. We called development. Um, went to work at Bowdoin College for the next five years. And, and during those times, I started uh, passive investing in real estate with my best friend, you know, from Carlton, who had pursued his real estate career. He went on to become an architect and then a developer. And he offered me this crazy thing called a syndication where uh, you apparently get these like 15 or 20% returns every year. And it came off to me kind of like a scam, you know, it's like too good to be true. Um, but I trusted him with my life. You know, I trusted him 110%. I was like, well, he wouldn't be connected with like mobsters or scam artists. So 
I'll, I'll give him a bunch of my savings and just see what happens. Cause my, I was kind of thinking, even if they only do half as good as they think they will, which to me as a stock investor was kind of likely, I mean, seven, eight, 10%, that's like great in the stock market. So 20 seemed outrageous. Um, but, and so I, I took a leap of faith, uh, gave him some money to go build an apartment building in Minneapolis. And um, over the next years, you know, started learning about the building process. We got these quarterly reports that ended up becoming quarterly distributions and, and dividends for the next seven years. And it eventually sold for, you know, an IRR, you know, basically an annual return of 33% a year, you know, so basically everyone there tripled their money and got a good cash flow over the course of the investment. So that certainly got me interested and intrigued in real estate. Um, you know, I didn't really have any capital of my own working in nonprofits. It's very unprofitable for your bank account for the most part. Um, you paid the bills and that was fine. But, you know, once, once we got pregnant with our first child, I was like, Ooh, I got to step up my game a little bit here to be able to, um, you know, just afford the kind of things we want to give to our kids and live a little bit more, uh, stress free than you are when you're kind of paycheck to paycheck as so many of us are in our early years. Um, so, you know, kind of thought, well, with stock investing, I mean, it's great that it goes up, but you're not going to live off your dividends as a young person and you can't really get much cash flow from it. It's not really tax advantaged and you, you, you shouldn't use leverage. It's not that you can't, but margin trading is, is playing with fire. So um, decided to, to look into real estate investing, but I thought, Ooh, that's like, icky, you know, it's like car sales and you know, the, the characters you think of as landlords are not, um, shall we say, the most respected in, in American life. Um, and what helped me get over that, that I wish I had kind of known or thought about it younger in my career even, was um, the idea is like, well, wait a minute, I've made my own house a lot more energy efficient and kind of greener uh, over time. And I've actually saved a lot of money doing that. What if I could start doing that to other people's houses? And frankly, I could use the renter's money to make their you know, building more energy efficient, cut down on greenhouse gases, carbon emissions, all that sort of thing, um, and just make them safer, healthier, healthier, cleaner places to live. And that was like, okay, that was my justification. I was like, okay, now I can kind of dive into this area that I had always kind of neglected or, or poo-pooed before. And of course, as, as you and, and probably a lot of your listeners know, it's very lucrative and 20% is not a crazy return, you know, for a real estate investment project when you consider appreciation and cash flow uh, to say nothing of the tax advantages that go with it. So I uh, didn't have any capital partnered with family who did have some where I basically, I'll do all the learning, I'll do all the work of the management. Uh, you put in the money and we'll, we'll split it, you know, in different ratios. And um, I got pretty good at that. And I started partnering with other people, you know, who also had money. And, and, you know, before I knew it, I was a syndicator and, uh, now doing my sixth uh, and seventh syndications uh, coming up. So it, it's been an exciting journey. Um, you know, we have a little over 150 units now. Um, I'm also a real estate agent. So I work as a commercial broker, helping other people buy and sell their property, um, which is kind of interesting. A lot of people with, for some reason, 99% of agents, even commercial agents, don't have a clue about owning and operating commercial real estate. You know, I own and operate 150 units. I started a property management company with my best friend from graduate school. And so I have that background and I think it, it lets me as an agent be much more um, accurate and honest with a lot of people, um, you know, where other agents, you know, they're, they're in it for the, tra the transaction fee. I mean, we're in it for the com commissions basically. And, you know, if you ask an agent, oh, what do you think it'll cost to like renovate this building in this way? 
don't put a lot of stock in the answer unless they really have experience with construction and those sort of things. And yeah. um, I think that is an advantage, you know, for folks that are looking to partner with an agent. I would definitely recommend one that owns their own investment property. And it's not just like a ski condo or something that, um, you know, that they actually have rental units and, or at least they, maybe they used to and got out of it or whatever, but um, having that hands-on experience with tenants, you know, with taxes, with all these different considerations that, a transactional agent is not going to be involved with, I think it's a big help for people. Dave wasn't familiar with multifamily real estate when he first started investing. After educating himself, he learned about the economies of scale of multifamily and other benefits, and eventually found himself transitioning into the multifamily space. I wouldn't say that I had limiting beliefs. Um, I just wasn't familiar with it you know, until, until I listened to enough podcasts and read enough books, um, to really understand it. And then once I did, you know, you, you, you get to understand, well, that it's economies of scale. And I, I guess my feeling with listeners, and I still own the single families that I bought, um, you know, seven, eight years ago. And part of my philosophy is basically never sell, which will not resonate with many of your listeners, but I'll explain why it's the right thing to do and, and why you're a fool if you ever sell anything. <laughs> Uh, but I think for, you know, limiting beliefs, um, I, I think a big thing has to do with, with mindset and, and just belief in yourself of like imagining yourself as someone who can do this and, and be on top of it. And in reality, real estate, you know, I think of it as like a very low to the ground kind of thing. You know, it's not options trading. It's, it's things that we all can touch and feel. Everyone's lived in real estate, um, you know, for hopefully most or all of their lives. And, it's very, it comes fairly intuitively to most people, even the very highfalutin concepts of, you know, triple nets and cap rates and things that are uh, intimidating to, to first timers and beginners. Um, it, you know, it, it all can just be boiled down to profit and loss, you know, and, yeah. and are you making more money than you're losing, you know, then you're doing good. And, and I think if you just get started with something, even if it's a tiny little single family home, that's okay. You know, as long as you're not losing money every month and you're cash flowing, you know, it's a learning experience. You're, you're instead of paying money for an MBA like I did, you're, you're uh, investing in an MBA that will actually pay you uh, more. Although there's other things to, you know, college and yeah. graduate school than, than buying a house. But um, I think single families have a lot to offer. I think they're great, you know, because they're basically a triple net property, meaning the tenant is going to mow their own lawn. They're going to pay their own, you know, electric bill. They're going to pay their own heating bill in most cases, or I recommend you set it up that way. Um, you know, they, the only things they might not pay are taxes and insurance. And if you're in a hot market, you might even get renters who will pay that for you. So, mm -hmm. um, they can be quite independent. You know, they don't require a lot of management headache. The tenants we have stay for years and years. I mean, many of them have never left. So you've got much lower turnover and vacancy in single family. And, and so even though a lot of investors are like, oh, you got to, you know, scale up, get to the billion unit, you know, apartment buildings and everything else. Like there's a reason that Black BlackRock and the big hedge funds are buying single family. You know, I mean, it's, it, it is a good asset class um, and yeah. they're very liquid. They're very tradable. So definitely a lot to recommend there, even though I did kind of move up and I'm not really looking for more now. When Dave first began to transition into the multifamily space, he quickly realized that he had to find a broker who specialized in the commercial space. Although he used to use a realtor in the single family space, he understood that commercial brokers have access to the majority of the deal flow. 
and I had to change brokers. I brought my first multifamily with my single family broker who had done plenty of small multifamily and that was all well and good, but it was definitely not his specialty. Um, and so that's one piece of advice I would have with people is like, you, you got to go, even though your residential broker is a great human being, you've partnered with them, you like them, they've helped you buy single family houses, um, go find, you know, their clone, but in commercial because, um, you know, a lot of times brokers are, especially in commercial, there's a lot more pocket listings and off-market opportunities happening than in single family, where it's becoming increasingly illegal to do that. Um, so, you know, the broker matters even more because if they're getting deal flow from their long and storied career, um, you know, and they think you're a legit solid buyer who can get them commissions and close on properties, you're going to tap into their deal flow. You know, even if you're young and inexperienced, uh, you don't have any deal flow of your own. If you get up with a good broker, um, you know, they can help you with that. So that'd be sort of piece of advice. Number one, yeah. for kind of getting started in multifamily, um, learning about the leasing process, um, you know, and, and studying what's in these leases. You can talk with attorneys. They'll often give you a, an hour pro bono to just kind of go over stuff. Um, you know, learning about that. Cause a lot of people don't think enough about the implications of a lease who pays for what, how long it lasts, what are the rules, you know, that document basically governs whether you're going to be stressed out or happy. <laughs> so yeah. you should pay a lot of attention to it. And I would say the same thing about financing. People don't pay enough attention to financing, which to me, far more important than the price of the property. I don't care if you're paying 300,000 or 310, doesn't matter. That's a wash in the long run. Doesn't matter at all. What matters a lot is whether you're paying 3% or 4%. That is a huge deal, especially if you're getting a 30-year fix. That's a huge, huge deal. Um, you know whether you have prepayment penalties or not, and knowing what those are and how long you're locking in. You know these are really important pieces to multifamily that single-family you don't really think about. You know single-family you're just getting a 30-year fix based on your income, you know your assets uh, and your credit score, and it's it's a pretty little box that the the loan agents you know, loan officers draw in. Whereas multifamily, I mean, you're painting, you know, abstract Picasso, you can do a lot more things in that realm. There's a lot more options. And the more you study those and the more you get competitive bidding happening among you, the banks, the better off you'll be. You know, don't just marry a bank once and never date the other banks. You know, you want to get some competition happening. And, and all my deals, I mean, we always send it out to at least four or five different banks to say, hey, you know, here's an opportunity for you to invest in me in this building, um, you know, here's, here's the performa, here's the packet for you. You know, we want you to make a competitive offer to us, you know, so you, it kind of transitions you to start thinking of yourself as like, you're a catch for them. You're fine because they can profit off you. And they're also your biggest investor. Mm -hmm. you know, if you're using leverage and financing, the bank is your, you know, 75 or 80% investor, you know, so you want to treat them really well. You want to keep them informed and, and that can really pay off in the future. They'll, they'll bail you out of a pickle, you know, when you're uh, needing some help quickly. Dave's first multifamily deal was a building he purchased near Bowden College, a university he worked at during that time. He bought a building nearby and didn't tell anyone. Well, it's a secret and I can't tell anyone about it because I was working for Bowdoin College and I bought a building like a quarter mile down the street from where I worked and I didn't tell anyone. It was, it was like my little secret. Um, you know, and I borrowed a hundred, I wouldn't recommend this to people, but I borrowed like, it ended up being like 105% of the 
purchase price. I didn't mean to. What happened was um, I was getting a loan from the bank and then I was getting a loan from family to make up the difference of the money I didn't have. But then during my due diligence, we found out that the roof, which was hard to see from the ground because it's not super angled, was no good. And we got a quote for a new roof. I came to the sellers with that and they knocked off $12,000 from the price because the bank was so, you know, they were well below the 80% they would normally lend. They didn't change the amount they were lending and my family didn't care about the amount they were lending. So I ended up, you know, borrowing, I think, 312000 to buy a 305000 three unit. Um, I wouldn't recommend that, again, to, to the viewers, just because unless you have a good liquid cash reserve, that's high risk. Um, so if you've got, you know, 30 to 50 grand sitting in the bank, yeah, sure, go do that. And you can backstop yourself if you have issues. But if you got two or three grand in the bank, like that's a huge no-no and you're going to go bankrupt if there's so much as a burst pipe. So um, that experience was really interesting. It was the, my first time um, inheriting tenants. You know, the houses we had bought were vacant. So, um, and, and in that situation, I had a commercial tenant on, on the first floor that was an engineering firm. Um, I had, uh, and then two residential tenants, one of whom had used to work for the firm. He'd been there like 15 or 20 years. Another was a lady who was way under market and she was late on her rent, which they only told me after the due diligence period. Ha ha, must have forgotten, slipped their mind. Um, and, uh, you know, a smoker clearly smoking in the unit, a lot of drinking going on and, and can't keep up with payments on a very under market rent. And I'm thinking, oh gosh, like here I go. I'm going to have to become the, the Scrooge McDuck bad guy landlord. And, um, you know, and so I, I was so nervous to go in and have this conversation with her, sat down in her living room and, and just kind of said, you know, like, I, I, I think, you know, we're going to be kind of raising rents here. And, and it sounds like you're a little ways behind in your current rent. And is there any way you could find another place to move to, you know, so that, that we can, you know, do some renovations here and, and so forth. And she was like, oh yeah, I figured you'd say that. Yeah, I can, I can move. No big deal. And I was like, oh, Oh, okay. That's amazing. Great. Like it was just complete relief of like, oh yeah. A lot of times tenants are kind of like, they see this coming, they see the writing on the wall. They know if they're paying half a market and their building gets sold, that there's going to be a, you know, change. And, you know, I ended up helping her with Craigslist postings, finding, you know, another place and, and she moved there and it was a very like friendly kind of amicable thing. I didn't need to like serve her notices to quit and kick her out or whatever. Um, you know, and I think a lot of times you can actually work these things out with tenants so that, you let them uh, live their lives and move with a minimum of drama um, and, and they'll do it because they know that there's, there's a drama route and there's a non-drama route, you know, and if the landlord works with you, you can take that. So I'm always a proponent of doing cash for keys or, or things like that to kind of avoid the court system. And the only time you usually get into the court system is when you're dealing um, with people with either mental illness or like criminality or, or stuff like that, where it's like, oh man, they, they can't do what's in their own best interest. They're not going to take the cast for keys. Like they don't know how bad it is to get an eviction on your permanent record. And here we go, you know, so there is that, but there was a pretty smooth transition to this property. You know, I, I was very like directly involved in renovating, you know, that unit that the woman moved out of um, met, you know, some great contractors learned a lot about that and ended up re-renting it for, you know, double what she was paying. I made a deal with the other long-term uh, tenant that he basically be the, the de facto site manager. And I gave him a rent break, you know, for that. So he does the mowing and the trimming and the leaf raking, keeps an eye on the place. I give him a generous rent, you know, and he doesn't need any renovations. I didn't have to spend a dime on his place and he didn't really want me to. He's a simple, 
you know, bachelor kind of guy who just he likes to keep it simple. So, and then the engineering firm was fascinating. You know, I'd never considered a commercial tenant and I just kind of fell into one by accident. Um, and my, my broker was like, oh, you could do a triple net lease. I was like, what's that? Like, tell me more. He's like, yeah, they'll pay your taxes and insurance and and all the, you know, their pro rata share of all those things for you. I was like, really? That's great. And and so sure enough, I worked out a lease with them where they paid a lot more and they stayed there for several more years and and it worked out fine. Um, So so that was the story of that first one. Um, There's a lot more to it that we can get into if you want, but that's sort of the basic overview. Dave has been a passive investor and an active investor. From his experiences, he's come to understand how critical the sponsor is in a deal. The sponsor is more important than the deal itself. A bad sponsor can ruin even a great investment opportunity. I think the sponsor is way more important than the deal. Um, You know, because if you invest with a good sponsor, you will not lose money. You know why? Because they're going to backstop you if they screw up so badly that it doesn't make money and they're going to make you whole. You know, if, if you go in with a greedy or shady sponsor, they're not going to make you whole. In fact, they're going to be looking at you like a cash, you know, ATM machine to, to take as much out of as they can. And they're just in this for the acquisition fees and the lifestyle and so forth. Um, so I think it's very important to um, look for sponsors who have a track record of honesty, um, you know, and it doesn't mean that they're long time people. I mean, it could be someone doing their first syndication. It's really about, do you trust them as a person with your money? Um, and I think that's really important, you know, so that's more important to me than the asset class, than the asset, than the market. Um, you know, I think knowing and, and kind of vetting the personality of the sponsor, doesn't mean that you have to go like have a beer with Grant Cardone. If you're going to invest in one of his syndications, like he's probably a busy man. I'm not sure he would be doing that for you and your 10 or $50,000, but um, I think even just listening to sponsors on podcasts, I mean, you can kind of get a sense is like, is this someone that I jive with that I would trust or not? Um, and, and that's a really key piece of it because these are private equity investments. You know, these are not something where we're filing, uh, you know, monthly or quarterly reports, you know, with the SEC and disclosing all of our financials. It's a much more opaque market. It's a very illiquid market. And if, before you put a big chunk of your savings into it, um, you really want to do your due diligence on the sponsor and the deal as well. You know, you, you do want to check out the deal and the returns and so forth. You know, I, I would say, uh, well, there's a lot of things we can say about what kind of deals to look for. Um, but one thing that I do want to say is I hear in a lot of podcasts that, you know, you only want to invest in certain markets. And sponsors will tell you, oh my God, you have to go, you know, to the South or to the Midwest or, or to DFW or, or Austin or, you know, wherever it is, you know, that you got to be in the right market because that's the rising tide that'll lift your boat. And I will actually say that is total hooey and it's not true. Um, and I've made great returns investing in markets that are never touted on the podcast or, or anything like that. But I mean, the returns that we make up here in Maine, and don't tell anyone this because we want it all to ourselves, are far better than, you know, the average returns that a lot of people have been making in, you know, Kansas or Indiana, just because they thought that was the only place they could go to ever make a profit. Um, You know, the the East Coast and the West Coast have plenty of good syndicators doing perfectly, you know, legit and profitable syndications, in part because a lot of investors, and, and I myself was completely guilty of this in the beginning, think that cash flow is the one and only thing that matters. 
You know, I think, all right, nothing else matters but cash flow. And I, I think that's wrong. I've really learned that's wrong. Um, it's, it's an important prerequisite. If, you're, if your syndication or your investment doesn't have cash flow, then absolutely, yeah, cross it off, you know, say goodbye, whatever. But appreciation is, is 10 times more powerful than cash flow in the exit uh, or in the liquidity event, you know, for you as an investor. So if you're in a great cash flow market, but your property never appreciates, you're going to guess what you're going to sell it for exactly what you bought it for. And that's, that's not really a great thing if you're looking for, you know, a high IRR in the long term because your cash on cash is probably not going to be 20%, 30%. You know, it's probably going to be 10 to 15% in a cash flow market. And that's great. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, I own some properties in, in, you know, Maine's cash flow markets that I bought them with zero expectation of appreciation. You know, I bought them for twenty-three thousand a unit, and I thought, great, if I sell them in ten years for twenty-three thousand, that's fine because I'm expecting a big recession where nothing appreciates, and I just want cash flow, and and that'll be great for me. And I want to do some social good because in a really low-income area, these buildings often have lead in them, and you've got families living there. Like your investment dollars can actually very meaningfully improve people's lives. Whereas if you're investing in A and B class in a kind of affluent area, like we're often told to or whatever, you're, you're not going to be doing a lot of transformational things to the property or the neighborhood or whatever. So there's different reasons you might invest in a cash flow market. But lo and behold, that cash flow market has actually doubled in value in the last three years. And you know we all look smart for doing it, but we didn't get into it. I didn't get into it with the expectation that would happen. And yeah. um, I think you do want that though. So I, I look for markets where like, is appreciation likely here? You know, has it happened historically? That's certainly a box to check. More importantly, is it does it have a good school system that's on the up and up? Um, you know, those are the kind of towns and cities that I think will appreciate if if people are coming there for the schools. That's kind of a permanent draw, um, and that appreciation, especially uh, with the Fed printing money, you know, money supply up twenty five percent in a year. Um, you're going to have a lot of appreciation and that's going to perhaps be a much bigger um, impact on people's investments in the coming years than the cash flow, which is kind of a lagging indicator because at least, well, for a residential tenant, it lasts at least a year. And for commercial tenants, it might last five or 10 years. So you can't just snap your fingers and make those you know, increase as soon as you feel like the market has changed. Dave has argued that real estate investors have an environmental obligation to operate their properties efficiently and with eco-friendly practices. There are multiple ways investors can not only increase their revenue, but also reduce the negative impact their properties have on the environment around them. And according to Dave, it's not that complicated. A topic near and dear to my heart. So basically, um, we live in this wonderful age where you can do well by doing good in real estate. Because if you don't take advantage of energy efficiency in your properties, you're just burning money. Um, so luckily now, this is not uh, something only for do-gooders uh, you know, like myself or, or people that have extra money they want to lavish on unnecessary things. This truly is a competitive advantage. If you understand green energy, if you understand building uh, performance, if you study that areas, you will be a better owner, landlord, and syndicator than your competition who is just doing it the way it's always been done. So that's the good news is that 
Um, you can make way more money if you study, you know, what's out there. And there's incentive systems. I mean, a lot of the loans you get have green incentives to them. But, you know, in climates where you either have extreme heat or extreme cold, you're going to need a heavy, you know, HVAC component to heat or cool, you know, your buildings. And that means that your buildings should be well insulated, especially if you, as the landlord, are paying uh, the heating or cooling bill. Um, you know, that, that is key to think about. And a lot of buildings, you know, that, that I buy and inherit, the landlord is paying the heat. Um, you know, and that, that to me is not necessary if you convert to heat pumps. So you go off of an oil or even natural gas fossil fuel system that the landlord is paying, you know, let's say in a small multifamily, five or 10 grand a year. Uh, that's a lot of money for a small landlord. And if you can install heat pumps, which might cost you let's say 10 to 15 grand, one time, one heat pump per unit, that is enough to heat and cool that unit, you know, indefinitely. And it, it knocks out, you know, that annual cost that you were paying to the oil company. The tenant now has an amenity. They've got AC, which they might've only had a window unit, you know, before that. Um, they've got a clicker with control over it. You know, they can put it as hot or cool as they want. You know, it's connected to their electric bill. So you get all that cost, you know, out of your NOI. You've just dramatically increased your NOI. You've dramatically increased the value of your building. You know, for every 10 grand of heat pumps I install, I'm adding like 50 grand to the value of my buildings because I'm knocking out costs that the landlord was paying. Um, similarly, with insulation, a lot of times uh, people are heating their basements in the Northeast or the Northern you know, sections of the US to keep pipes from freezing because the basement isn't well insulated. And every year you're paying hundreds or thousands of dollars to heat that basement. You can eliminate all that cost you know, one time by just insulating it. You know, and similarly with an attic, you know, those are great spaces to insulate. Very cheap to do. You know, insulating an attic in a building with cellul cellulose insulation is like two or three grand. Um, and you're gonna save that in year one if you're paying the heat, you know, so if you're locked into leases where the landlord pays the heat, you can, you can literally reduce your costs in one year. If you have an uninsulated or, or poorly insulated attic, you just go and insulate it, heat rises. And if it stops rising up and out of your building, you know, you're going to keep it in there up until you can get to a point of installing heat pumps and getting, you know, the tenants to be paying their own, their own way. So those are a couple really easy ways on kind of small properties, you know, to do it. Now in bigger properties, we're looking at, you know, solar energy, we're looking at battery backup instead of the traditional generators. Um, we're looking at something called demand response, which is going to be a huge part of the kind of smart grid in the future. But basically we as a building owner can get paid money just for allowing uh, the utilities to take temporary control of people's thermostats, which sounds kind of big brother, but in reality, you as a tenant aren't really gonna care if your AC goes off for five minutes during a peak demand period and then it kicks right back on. Like your apartment temperature is not gonna change radically in that time, but your landlord is gonna be earning a lot of money because they're helping the grid sustain itself. So those are some things you know, that you can do that are practical and cost-effective you know, for big and small landlords. But I would also say just on just kind of an ethical level, you know, I have this kind of Boy Scout, Girl Scout mentality of like, leave the campsite better than you found it. I think that applies to the earth, to society. We all as investors, especially if we're doing well and making money, should be leaving our communities and the earth better we found it. The earth is currently on fire because of the poor choices that our societies have made. Um, and we need to change that. You know, we need to cool things down. You know, all these hurricanes and, and crazy weather events, um, you know, it, it's our collective fault and we can fix it in actually a way that'll make America more competitive if we, you know, dive in and become leaders in green energy and those sort of things. So 
that's my spiel. Uh, I think it's a nonpartisan issue. I, I have great friends on the Republican and Democratic side who see this in the same way. And I, I think it's kind of a winning issue that we as landlords and investors you know, can really focus on in the coming years and challenge some of the contractors and architects and people who frankly, like they're, the older they are, like the more they're going to do it the way it's always been done because that's what's comfortable. And I can't tell you how many times I'll do like a quote with a heat pump installer who's like, oh, you're going to need three in this, you know, 800 square foot unit to really heat it. And I'm like, no, let's just do one. And then I can add two or three later if, if I need to. But in my experience, you know, one does the trick and it costs a third of what you're recommending. And I appreciate that, you know, by the old metric and systems, maybe you think you need more, but um, you, you don't always need to oversize systems. And in fact, that's another great savings you can get, especially on new construction, where if you do good insulation for that envelope of the building, you can buy much smaller heating systems. You know, you can save a ton of money because you don't need to heat as much. You know, the BTUs necessary are much lower. So there's lots of good kind of low hanging fruit opportunities out there. After only having done residential and a mixed use building, Dave put a property under contract. Unfortunately, things didn't go as planned. Although it looked promising to him, he quickly realized how complex the project was, and he was forced to make a tough decision. You know, I think it's one of these things where you just have to get up, brush yourself off, and keep going. Um, you know, my favorite failure uh, was when I got a little out over my skis. Um, I'd only done residential, you know, in that one mixed-use building. And I went and put a um, million dollar building under contract that would need historic tax credit renovations um, and a massive kind of gut renovation thing. And I, I put it under contract very impulsively because I was just like, oh, wait, that building's right on Main Street in this beautiful college town. It should be worth at least two million and they're selling it for one. Like, I'll buy it. I had no idea what was inside it. I didn't even go through it. I just put it under contract. I was like, this is great. Um, and I spent the next four months working with architects and consultants and engineers and lawyers to figure out the historic tax credit renovation process, which is incredibly complicated. This is not a simple fill out a form and you're done kind of uh, system. I mean, yes, it'll pay, you know, up to, well, in Maine, you know, over 40% of your costs um, of the whole renovation, which is phenomenal, but there's so many strings attached. And so the closer I got to the time when my earnest money would go hard, the, the, the more unsure I was of the performa I had put together. And basically everything needed to go right for me to even make like a 7% you know, cash on cash return for investors. And this was gonna be my first syndication. And I finally, you know, I talked with my good friend, Jason Lord in Minnesota, you know, who had done some syndications and it, it just, it made sense to back out. And so you know, I, I backed out, I had spent almost as much on the architecture and, and due diligence of that building as I'd spent on my MBA. You know, I was definitely uh, bruised by this one, um, but it was a great learning experience. It was a great networking experience. And it taught me that I would much rather do, and I, I literally, like, if I had gone through with that, it would be just opening now, you know, after like two, two and a half years of crazy intense renovations. And in that time, I, you know, I bought like 10 different properties and I'm so much further ahead in my career than I would have been if I just like rammed that one through and said, yep, we'll do or die. We have to do this no matter what, even though the performa and everything look really dicey and, you know, there's just so many unknowns in, in big historic buildings. So I'm really glad that I had that failure. I definitely, you know, took a haircut on it. Um, but my investors gained more confidence in me when I sent them that email saying, I'm not taking your money, 
you know, I, I don't feel comfortable going ahead with this, even though I got y'all all excited about it. We're not doing a raise and, and I'm going to back out and look for something else. And sure enough, I found a similarly sized property that for 820,000 in the same downtown area was already occupied and it didn't need a massive $3 million renovation. It wasn't going to take two years to get cash flow. Like it cash flowed in day one. You know, that, that was a good lesson. For Dave, real estate has allowed him to achieve a level of happiness that, to him, is even more important than his portfolio size. Along with the fulfillment he's reached, he's working on a new project with a friend. I'm kind of happy and fulfilled as a person, so it doesn't matter if I'm earning, you know, a million a year or a hundred thousand a year, you know, I have enough for my family and I'm feeling like challenged and excited and invigorated. Um, yes, 2021 has been the best year of, you know, my career and I've earned about triple what I did last year. And it's been a great, you know, transformation. Although I feel bad saying that because for so many people in our country, it's been the worst year ever and they've lost family members. You know, we lost an uncle to COVID. Um, so it's been a terrible thing. Uh, get vaccinated is my other uh, message to everyone out there. Um, COVID is a thousand times more dangerous than the vaccine, you know, so don't be a chicken, go do it, roll up your sleeve. Um, that's my other message to people. But um, I think, you know, looking at what we're doing, uh, I'm doing my first new construction project, you know, with my best friend from Minnesota, really excited about that. It's in an opportunity zone. So there's huge tax advantages to it. Um, and we're going to try to make it one of the, you know, greenest, most efficient buildings that's been built in Maine and do it, you know, in a really profitable way. So, you know, that's really exciting. And, and I'm really excited about the team that I'm building in our property management company. They're all kind of friends and, and colleagues, and we have a lot of fun together. You know, there's not a meeting that goes by without a lot of, you know, joking and laughing. So that to me is really important. It's more important than whether I'm earning 20% or 10 or 30, you know, it's like, are you, are you having a good life? <laughs> and do you feel like you're getting to the, the place in life that you want to be? Real estate's a great way to do that, but there's lots of other ways too. And, you know, it's not for everyone. I would also say there's probably people listening who have tried it or are trying it who, you know, maybe you are meant to just have a job and feel much comfortable and safer doing that. And I have plenty of friends who like, I think they'd be great in real estate, but they just want to do something where everything's known and, and comfortable and secure. And there's, there's bumpers in all the lanes and like real estate investors, like that's not what this is. <laughs> there's not bumpers in all the bowling lanes. You know, you need to be comfortable with having a ball in the gutter once in a while. Dave aims to become a property management company that educates and assists other multifamily investors in making their properties be more eco-friendly. He intends to keep an open mind when it comes to the future of his real estate business, because this has allowed him to take advantage of the various opportunities he's encountered along his journey. We want to become one of the biggest property management companies in the East Coast and consult with, you know, building owners, investment companies on how to, you know, make their buildings more energy efficient, how to do better by their tenants, how to reduce turnover and vacancy. Um, so that's it's one of our goals, um, you know, building this 57 unit building in the opportunity zone is a goal. Um, you know, long term, I, I don't I don't have my whole life mapped out, you know, too concretely, in part because um, part of what has helped me be successful has been uh, being open to different opportunities as they arise. So if I had said to that three unit mixed use building, no, it, it has a commercial unit in it. I can't touch that because my goal is residential. Like, well, then I wouldn't have owned a great building that's made of credible profits for me and just refinanced and gave me a hundred grand from the refinance, like tax-free, you know, like you, you have to be kind of willing to be opportunistic, I think in life and in real estate. 
um, and just listen to what, you know, the universe is kind of whispering to you. So I don't have it all planned out too concretely, but I think I want to do a little more of new construction and build buildings that are going to be great places to live 500 years from now. You know, like that's the kind of time frame that I want our buildings to last for. Um, this is not like slap it together, you know, <laughs> stick built, whatever, even though we're using sticks and so forth. Um, you know, I think good buildings, and we see this up here in Maine where, you know, people settled here in the 1600s. I mean, we own buildings that were built by like revolutionary war veterans and we have tenants in them now, you know, and it's really cool to see that well-built wooden buildings or any kind of building, you know, can last for hundreds of years. So do it right the first time. Cause most of my career buying what I call used buildings instead of new is fixing other landlords mistakes. And, you know, okay, that wall was put up, it should be torn down or let's put up a wall to make a bedroom out of this big empty unused space or, you know, things like that. Uh, that you find in the built environment. So um, I love the opportunity to kind of make things uh, right from the get-go and, and we're gonna pursue some more of that, you know, as we go forward. Doing the right thing is something that Dave emphasizes and he's realized that it can actually be profitable for a real estate investor to do that. I think doing the right thing is often really hard and it, sometimes doing the wrong thing is easier. And I would say go go the hard route in those times because you'll be richly rewarded for it, it, it by your own conscience, sleeping well at night kind of thing, but also often economically, like it's, it's funny how these things work. You know, I think there is, there's certain karmic, you know, laws out there where, um, you know, we've often, um, you know, looked for refugees or people that are homeless and put them in housing, even though they either don't have a credit score or it's so low, you could add it up, you know, without a calculator. <laughs> like, um, And that's not always the right thing to do. We don't take every person that has a terrible history coming to us. But um, I think it's important to not be, don't, don't be like the residential loan officers who are so inside the box that they will turn away good human beings just because their credit score isn't where it should be. I mean, follow fair housing laws as well. I'm not saying uh, violate those, but um, I would say be be open to you know the different possibilities that come to you, whether it be tenants or investments or you know mentors or people. Um, keeping an open mind uh, and not settling down for me has been really important. I'm not someone who has just picked one niche or one asset class and and been happy just kind of replicating those widgets for the rest of my life. You know, I kind of enjoy learning new things and the diversity of things. So that's why I'm doing some new construction. It's not because I think it's going to be, you know, insanely more profitable than all the things I've done so far. It's because I really am excited about the learning it's going to bring and, and the opportunities it'll bring as well. Dave shared how people can reach out to him and learn more about him and his business. I always give out my personal cell phone and only like one person ever calls me. So, you know, give me a shout, uh, 207 517-5700. That's my phone. You can leave me a message if, if I'm busy. Um, my email is dave at holmanhomes.com. Uh, our, our investing website is holmanhomes.com and our management site is katahdinmanagement.com. Uh, and Katahdin is the northern terminus of the Appalachian Trail. So if you walk from down in the Donis Brothers neighborhood up to my neighborhood, you know, there's that's a cool walk. Everyone should get out in the woods and do that sometime. So that's our management company. You know, because my partner and I had had hiked a bunch of the Appalachian Trail, not all of it, but sections and stuff and loved it. And that mountain meant a lot to us. So check us out. We'd love to connect. Um, happy to, you know, bounce any ideas off me and, and chat.
Thank you for joining us today on the Real Estate Monopoly podcast. If you got value from this episode, please do us a favor and give us a good rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Make sure to visit our website at www.donisinvestmentgroup.com backslash monopoly, where you can subscribe to our newsletter so you'll never miss a show. If you want to avoid the top five mistakes passive investors make, you can also check out our free ebook by going to www.donisinvestmentgroup.com and downloading it. Be sure to tune in to our next episode. Until then, take care, guys.